Welcome to Old Takuno Radio, episode 20 on Kids on the Slope. I am Jared, and I am joined, as always, by our very own Lullaby of Birdland, the incredible Indefatigable Inc. Hello. And we are also joined, uh, and very excited, to have uh, fellow AnyGamers contributor and IGN freelancer Alex Osborne on the show today. Uh, how's it going, Alex? Good. Thanks for having me. I think it's time we reveal to the the Anagamers community what we're really doing with these Anagamers contributor crossover episodes is we're setting up the uh, the Anagamers shared universe <laughs> and um, <laughs> what you know kind of the 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 meta plot here is that you know David is after all of all six of the the weeb stones and if he gets them. Uh, he will wipe out half of anime, so we're we're banding together, uh, probably to help him because that kills a lot of bad stuff, guys. That's that's I mean it's pretty, that's it's I mean it pro- probably if it's up to David, it's it's all just Monogatari and nothing like everything else kind of gets just turned to ashes. TQ is also safe. Oh yeah, probably yeah. TQ's TQ's good. Two car though. Two cars. <laughs> <laughs> And Dead Leaves is probably immune to the powers of, of any kind of cosmic entity, so I, I, I think it probably will live on anyway. I would actually love to hear David's thoughts on Dead Leaves. Oh, God. That would be amazing. But we digress already. <laughs> um, so, Kids on the Slope. Uh, this is a 2012 anime that, uh, Ink, why don't you break it down for us a little bit? Sure, this is actually MAPPA's very first production after Maruyami left uh, Madhouse. And uh, the plot follows uh, a young kid named uh, Keiro Nishimi. And his father's a sailor and just left for extended service. And he sends his kid to live in Kyushu with uh, his uh, aunt and uncle. At least I think his aunt and uncle, definitely his aunt. Keiro is first in his class, he's uptight, he studied classical music on piano. But he suffers severe social anxiety. He gets dizzy from anything that happens that's unexpected, and he gets nauseous from any minor stress encountered thereafter. Uh, That makes his meeting with Sentaro Kawabuchi, who's this rumored bully who, and the sort of roll with punches jazz drummer, all the more dizzying to him. And that, that sort of comes to a calm when he meets this beautiful girl in the same class named uh, Ritsuko. After that, this whole anime is this coming-of-age romance story where the three youngsters find themselves and love and loss in music. Good stuff. Ain't it, though? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. I remember how good this was the first time I saw it and how emotionally affecting it was on me the first time I saw it. While I had a bit more of a critical eye the second go-around, the emotional beats were still, even years later, just as affecting and... Um, I was kind of surprised how emotionally drawn into the story I got, even though I knew like everything that was going to happen. So, still, uh, you know, holds up to the staying power test at least. Other things, not as much. You know, I, I actually forgot. I remember, I remember disliking the ending, 
which we'll talk about later in a spoiler section. Um, and I, I came around on that. I actually really liked the ending this time around. But I had forgotten about all the uh, all the love octangle stuff, mm. to quote one of our uh, contributor, uh, one of our questions uh, a little later. I forgot how many people thought other people were falling in love with other people while falling in love with other people. And <laughs> I really enjoyed it, because I love Boy Meets Girl stories. Just to kind of echo what you said, uh, Jared, just um, the emotional impact and connection, and I think Kaoru is really relatable, and I think sort of the presentation of his anxiety in the beginning, and it's kind of like, it's so easy to, um, at least for me, relate to that character, and I feel like the way he comes out of his shell is is organic and believable in a way that you kind of rarely see in high school anime and those relationships. Well, how he comes out of that shell is basically just encountering this, you know, love of his life that, you know, just love at first sight. Well, two loves at first sight, really, is what this anime is about. Because when he gets nauseous, he, he flees to the roof, which is his centering point, and the door's locked on the roof, and he can't get out, and there's only one person who has a key, and it turns out it's this uh, supposed hooligan. Um, or actually, it's the, the third gra- third years mm-hmm. that are keeping the key. And then the hooligan comes to the rescue, and is you know he's being rescued. He's, he's now the maiden in distress. But he's no longer nauseous from the second he pulls off that sheet. So it's just like his encounter with Ritsuko, who just sort of, is, as class rep, comes over to him and says, Oh, hey, let me explain things. In the other instance, it's him fleeing to the roof to try to not to vomit and pulling the, the sheet off of Santaro uh, and just seeing this angelic beauty is bathed in light from the window and reaching up a hand and half dream and calling him an angel. I, I think this is one of the best examples of a in a first episode of an anime where you have really tight economy of characterization. Uh, when they introduce each of these three characters, they they set the scenes up and they set the not just the dialogue, but the way the dialogue is delivered in a way that really gives you a lot of insight into into the character, at least at the beginning of the story. You know, Kaoru being this very sheltered in one way, but but also um, withdrawn in another kind of guy who doesn't really he doesn't really have anyone close in his life. Um, the only person that might have been close in his life has has uh, taken off and left him, you know, his dad. And just in that one 24-ish minute episode, he encounters Ritsuko, and you get a really kind of solid sense of her character, like, right away. Um, you know, she's friendly, she's helpful. He's absolutely head over heels in love with her, basically, at first sight. And then the same thing with Sentaro is... You find his character, and I, and I kind of love the way they introduce him because there's there's the contrast of he's almost beatific, laying on this this bench made of you know uh, uh, chairs, and one in one scene, and then the next scene he's getting the snot beat out of him and giving back as good as he gets uh, with these third year bullies that have the the key to the roof, and it's this really odd contrast, but he is nothing but a bunch of contrasts in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Um, and I, I arguably, I think one of the most, the, probably the most interesting character I think in the whole, in the whole show to, to me, um, even though I think like Alex, I identify with Kaoru like way more, especially at that age. Good Lord. 
Mm. Yeah, I, I really was impressed, especially on the second watch through, uh, when I wasn't just being swept along in the story, by just how in those, you know, right there in that first day of school, and you're not even like halfway through the episode, you know who each of these characters are, and you kind of have an understanding of their inner nature pretty much right away. Yeah. Definitely. And they're all multidimensional. It's like when you first see, like when that, when I was first introduced to Centauro, it was like, oh, this is going to be a stereotypical, like, bully character, but he has a lot of vulnerabilities. And you see those mm-hmm. pop through pretty early on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jared was saying that the organic introduction of that character, especially through the secondhand nature of that other kid who felt bullied by his presence, even though I don't think he was ever directly bullied by him, he just felt the intimidation mm. through his. Uh, through his reputation, uh, because Centauro sat right, sat right behind him and just was this force. Because Centauro is a very large character, he's he doesn't care about much. He just cares about doing the right thing and everything that he wants to do. So as long as you leave him alone, as one character says later on, everything's fine. Like, but he can be he can be your worst enemy because he's built like a shit brick house. And uh, but you know, as long as you respect him and don't intimidate him you're fine. But that the very fact that he carries that aura about him and that reputation makes him a very uh, threatening character to others. So you get that layered presentation of him and it's something that's done really well and, and truly organically. Yeah, and they're not, you know, Kaoru and Sentaro are not automatically like best bros. There's, there's this mm. kind of wary period where they circle each other, uh, not literally, but sort of you know, metaphorically in the plot, um, and it's it's not really until they kind of both discover their interest in music, their common interest in music, that that a relationship really begins to build. And and really, when these when these two characters want to co- really communicate to each other, they always do it through music. They mm-hmm. they they can't ever. They're both really terrible at expressing themselves. So it it music is like the only way they can do it. I like that introduction. It takes place in the nurse's office after that first brawl on the rooftop, where uh, Centaro is just sort of uh, uh, air drumming on the on the desk. He's drumming with pencils, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kara look, like, looks over and he hears it. And he's like, Wait, "That's jazz." And that that sort of fluid introduction of you know their opposite inclinations are you know portrayed right then and there for the audience. But it's just a natural conversation, mm-hmm. and it was, it was kind of beautiful. Yeah. Um, I guess we should take a moment to say that this um, – while this was MAPPA's first release, they they had some, some kind of okay uh, talent uh, associated with this production. <laughs> uh, you know, some, some, some scrappy, you know, up-and-coming young auteurs – Anybody want to talk about those right now, or should we... I think it's a good time to talk about. Alex, do you want to talk about Um, Sure. Well, um, Yoko Kano, I'm sure many of you have heard of her, uh, has Gotta hope from where composed the uh, music, and um, and I'm sure everyone knows Watanabe, who is the director um, on the project. And Watanabe had been denied original proposals for years, um, and this would be his first adaptation. The animation nearly bankrupt the fledgling company. So I don't know if you guys want to get into that a little bit. I didn't realize 
that, but I think it makes a lot of sense when you look at the quality of, especially, especially those early few episodes where they really, really, really just go all out. Because animating Centaro playing the drums, oh my God, can you imagine mm-hmm. how many how many frames that is, uh, and how it's a lot. and how smooth it looks. That's what's just crazy. Well, that's kind of the real story behind this anime because what I mean Mar- Mariyama approached Watanabe uh, because at, at, at Madhouse Watanabe had been denied a number of proposals like uh, proposals like Alex said and uh, they were all originals uh, but for some reason via either budget or uh, timing the the nothing ever worked out for him so when Mariyama started the new studio he's like hey Watanabe, you want to do this adaptation of such and such? And he's like, I know you love music. Uh, read the manga and tell me what you think. So he comes back and says, I love it. I want to do it. And uh, he says, can I have Yoko Kano? <laughs> First off, because of their uh, previous in- involvement together. And like, if Watanabe does anything involving music, where that needs a musical sort of driving force behind the scenes, that's his go-to. Uh, he... They work so well together, they influence each other, as uh, evident on Cowboy Bebop, where the story actually changed via her uh, contributions. And this one, Watanabe hates music portrayed in anime largely because of the lack of detail. And he said, no, this has got to be done right. So what they did was they actually brought in a jazz drummer and a jazz pianist into the studio, just sort of collided them together on day one and said, hey, this is what you're going to play, go. And they recorded them uh, each with 10 cameras uh, for uh, purposes of, you know, recording the actual movements that were going to be later hand-drawn after editing all that 10 feeds together into a storyboarded frame. And that's what nearly bankrupted the company because mm-hmm. they were hand-drawing all these gorgeous sequences in such detail to the fact that, to the point where if you watch the anime through again after realizing that fact, you'll see how many stills are in a lot of episodes. And Mariyama said, that's what kind of saved the series, because we spent so much money on animating these uh, performances that we barely had anything left. And they make those stills work, because those stills usually are themselves really evocative and, and, and just gorgeous. And they usually signify a shift in the show, like a shift in the plot or, you know, like a shift in the tone, you know, really, really well placed. You know, a lot of... A lot of anime when they're when they're way over budget and they the production quality just falls through the floor. Uh, and it, towards the last couple, ep- the very last episode, you could see a couple of parts where it's just a little off, uh, but nothing like so many other anime I've seen where it just looks just god awful and, and like glaringly so. I, I had to really if I hadn't seen this. And, and was watching it so intently, both the first time I watched it and, and then, you know, trying to find things wrong with it this time, which was hard. Um, <laughs> you know, I would probably wouldn't have seen it. Funny side story. When people talk about budget, a lot of other people tend to get angry. But there was a specific thing mentioned in one of Sentai's extras. And this is one of the few discs, if you buy, actually has really good extras by Sentai. It has uh, interviews with Watanabe, Yoko Kano, and the uh, pianist and drummer from the uh, from, well, from the series who were uh, animated into the characters of uh, Nishimi and uh, Sentaro. 
but one of the stories was like to actually fall under budget they used a lot of amateur photographers and borrowed cameras from all their friends and used those oh wow <laughs> resourceful it was yeah yeah <laughs> That's awesome. Like yeah. I, I, for the rewatch, even though I own Kids on the Slope, for the rewatch, I uh, I just watched it um, streaming off Crunchyroll, and uh, I kind of regret that now because I I wish I had stopped to think about hey, there's extras, I should listen to those. I mean, you don't always get good extras in shows anymore, but man, those that sounds really great. Yeah, Sentai is uh, notorious for only including their own like coming soons, and that's about it. Clean openings, closings, but uh, and Funimation includes their own voice actors' commentaries, which are essentially useless. But this one, definitely worth getting. Another thing that struck me, um, kind of not animation-wise, but just more art direction-wise, um, was the, the were the character designs, which were pretty unique. I can't really think of anything that looks quite like this. And I think also just the coloring and the shading. It almost adds like a a depth that I don't like, a lot of anime looks flat where this looked like it really had like a, a level of depth to it I don't know if that stood out to either of you but no I, I, I think I think you're right um, there's a uh, there's a real richness of color throughout the show and uh, even beyond that I think that the you know again owning to the to the intense level of passion I think MAPPA put into the animation there's a lot of subtlety uh, that that creates that depth, I think, too. You know, just in the way that, that facial expressions sort of evolve through a conversation uh, that the characters will be having with each other. I noticed on a couple of a couple of occasions that uh, y- you know it, it it really sort of told the story. And and honestly, I think one of my favorite examples of that uh, it actually comes from the very last scene of the very last episode. Of the show, which I won't get into what that is because mm. we're not going to get the spoilers yet. But um, with that subtle, there's, there's just some subtle changes in expression on one of the characters' faces at the very end, and it tells everything about what that character's thinking in in the in that expression and and that shift in expression, and it really um, it just it shines through and. Uh, it, you can just you can see the level of of detail and 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 passion they put into so many scenes like that one. Absolutely, yeah. And speaking of shiny, I I have to mention one scene that comes a little later as representative of what I love what Mappa did with this because um, this is an adaptation, but I loved um, not only the classical shojo look to uh, the. I want to say more of the female characters than the male. The male sort of seemed more modern, while uh, Ritsuko seemed very classic. I don't know if I'm totally off on that, but that's just how it occurred to me. But there is this one scene where uh, Sentaro is looking at a, a pen in a, in a bathroom, and there's some faint light coming through a window that's located above him, and he twists the pen just you know as the metal clip from the top of the pen hits that light it shines in the camera just for a couple of seconds and it's just so real and it's mm. it's really sparking a moment of realization on the character's part um, because he's realizing what that gift meant to him uh, given who it came from mm-hmm. but it's all shown it's it's nothing well actually he does sort of reiterate a bit of uh, 
pertinent dialogue afterwards, but um, a lot of what MAPA does is with light in the series, either coming through windows or shading, like Alex mentioned. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a fantastic bit of animation. They know how, they know what they're doing. <laughs> totally know what they're doing. And that stained glass shot in the church, too. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah, that, oh, so amazing. You know, we're talking about the animation, so if you want to talk about the performances, because those, I mean, they, they are, I mean, they're hand-drawn off of uh, videotaped performances, and they are what drove the show. Uh, are there any particular ones that drove your, uh, or sort of just sort of clenched you as a viewer? You know, the one at the very end is so emotional <laughs> at that point. I remember the first, like, I, I I remember the first time I ever saw this show and got to that scene, and I think my my wife and I were watching it together, and I don't know if if she had tears in her eyes watching that, but but I and I can't tell because I had tears in my eyes, and everything looked blurry, and I was like, must blink the tears away because missing show, but that last the last jam session of the series is just. Mm amazing and and again like you know the visuals are are incredibly impressive but i think what's so special about the show and and it really it's it's the strength of shinichiro watanabe and his his passion about music in his productions is the way that music is used to communicate more than words can say like of all the creative arts i think music is the most primal you know in the way that it it can do something that the written word and I think even visual art can't quite do. It's, you know, certain sounds make you feel things, make you think things just automatically, like your brain just does it. And it's a thing that cuts across cultures. And it's a perfect piece of evidence for that is just the way that, that this American music, this quintessentially American music is is used to tell the story of the lives of these japanese teenagers uh, and in a in a really interesting time like you know in the i don't know that we mentioned if we mentioned this or not but this is this is set in like 1966 or five so deep in the showa era part of me wants to feel like there's a young skeroku out there somewhere like telling the best damn story ever like my personal headcanon that's a shared universe I, I don't care what anybody thinks, but uh, but uh, you know I, I'm a sucker for period dramas. I, I can't help myself. But everything about the look and the feel of that time, and how it sort of evokes a simpler time, but it also evokes a very complicated and complex time too. Especially with uh, June's involvement. Yeah, uh, you know there's there was different social mores of the time. You know like. And I think that I think the show captures all of that really well, but but this music, uh, just amazing, and the conversations that these characters have through the music, mm. and and really when we say that we generally are talking about the two uh, the two uh, male leads, you know, even though Kaoru is kind of the main lead guy, um, that you know a lot of this is about the relationship that Kaoru and Sentaro have through music uh and it, they're it's brought just... together through it they heal their relationship through it and without getting into like spoilers also when another character uh they say goodbye to a character through music yeah uh, 
yeah it's just uh yeah like you said it's like it's like this it's like the universal language and can convey when words just like won't do what i find interesting with the parallel between fighting and the uh performance scenes in terms of animation production because those are the two areas where this show really stops and pays attention to fluidity of movement because mm-hmm. that that first rooftop fighting scene is gorgeous you have a camera that's swooping to angles that you normally don't go to just to capture the the, the clouds above uh, some of the characters heads as they're tossing people over their shoulders uh, and in the in the myriad uh, performance scenes like we've mentioned it's 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 a battle it's a healing but it's always a conversation and you totally get that because of the attention to detail you you're you're hearing this wonderful jazz but you're seeing all the effort that's going into it from the characters the sweat on their brow the them leaning forward to you know hit the right things or stand up slightly just to put the right force on the keys and all of that was actually uh filmed in studio too they turned the performers into the characters for those performance Mm. scenes which is why it feels so real (laughs) but the storyboarding makes it all about the the character dynamic yeah and the balance of all that are just masterful i will say that just the high fidelity of those performance sequences it's it's a little bit jarring but i feel like in a good way like that first time centauro goes off on the the drum set it just like it took me back but in a good way like it's it's a good sort of moment where it kind of mirrors sort of that gut punch like of emotion that i'm feeling at the same time um I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't think my words are coming across exactly. The, the drums. The first time he he uses those drums, he, I saw that and went, "Well, God, like the drums. That's him in music form. Like the drums are him, you know. Like that's that's his totem, right? And you can kind of say the same thing for for Kaoru too, because you know Kaoru looks like a pianist and Sentaro looks like a drummer. It's it's kind of like once you see them doing their thing it's like oh yeah that makes the most sense in the world like you you know like i couldn't see either of those dudes you know throwing on a bass or an electric guitar or something like that like right yeah they really embody those instruments they do they do i mean kaoru is even like super pale (laughs) so he looks like a piano like Against his black uh, uniform. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Ebony he and ivory. Looks like a key, man. Um, so I have a question for you guys as, as sort of a, a big picture thematic question. Is is this the most John Hughes anime? Or is there a more John Hughes anime? Hold on. I'm looking for John yeah, Hughes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, oh, gosh. John I, know, I know the name, but I can't think of the movie. Breakfast oh, Club, yeah. Pink kind of like the famous teen director teen Mm. 80s movie director uh ferris bueller's day off also uh, lover (laughs) but um yeah yeah that's john hughes okay yeah i think uh i'm trying to think if there's anything else that even comes close like 16 candles that's another john hughes movie Mm. it's definitely in the same vein yeah but i i did i did want to also ask um because alex raised a very good point like that that jarring sort of nature between the performance scenes and the rest of the anime is that too much because Watanabe wanted to focus on the music that brings these two characters together but is the 
disparity in animation between or disparity in detail between the animation between the music scenes and the drama scenes we'll call them is that too much well i wonder yeah if if there was like a trade-off like if if it was a bit more baseline and we didn't get the like if it was more yet yeah, even across the board and we didn't get those like pop moments i don't know like i feel like the disparity it's like the characters like come alive when they're playing um which is like it, it sort of fits it's like that's when these characters really do come alive they they i feel like i'm like watching real people almost you know yeah cuz it is like dropping the lights and watching a show Mm-hmm. And that's, like you said, when they come alive. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. But I hadn't thought about that prior to your thought. And that is a valid uh, valid observation. I, I, I'm going to get uh, thrown off of our own show for saying <laughs> this. But it, to, to me, it's kind of like, you know, I don't feel taken out of the anime when I'm watching Dragon Ball Z and they're not fighting. <laughs> so So I don't get taken out of kids on the slope. I especially don't get taken out of kids on the slope when they're not playing music. Like the music is the music is always the thing that resolves a conflict pretty much every time um, and causes it. But there's a lot of human drama going on around that too. And um, you know some of it's a bit over the top. Um, but I mean, you know that's the kind of story this is. Dramas are not known for their, you know, realistic sensibility about human emotion but um but jared your lion april was the most perfect perfectly subtle <laughs> drama there is <laughs> um i think this is a better a better coming of age story than your lion april yes. and i like your not lion april i think it's one of the better coming of age stories anime has to offer because it actually doesn't end with like some rote insert classic horrible kind of just random anime plot disease kind of thing happening that is so minor spoiler that doesn't happen (laughs) (laughs) um it actually it actually goes for something a little little different um so so i i i like i like the human drama of this almost as much as i like the music of it because i just think it's really i think it's really well done i think it's authentic Mm-hmm. to like how teens would react i mean you know teens are not like you know i don't know like when i was a teenager i i was an even bigger idiot than i am now i did not make you know completely rational decisions uh when my you know when when i was impassioned about something or when when i was you know in the in the throes of good old teenage angst, which there's no small amount of in, in this, in the show. Um, so, so I, I didn't ever feel like the characters would do, were doing something that if I was their age, I was them in their circumstances that I wouldn't have done, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of, that's where a lot of these kind of dramas tend to fall down. Right. Yeah. There's a very fine line to walk, I think before yeah. you go from, Okay, that's good drama, and I can see that character doing that too. Oh God, now now we're just in bad soap opera territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think authentic is is the is the word. Like that was the one I was searching for, and you got it. Yeah, for sure, authentic. Like I I love your Lion April. Um, I love sort of the over the top melodrama, um, but this is refreshing in 
in doing something that you don't see that often and something that does feel like this could have happened in a high school. Yeah. Yeah, because as much as the whole, you know, will they, won't they thing is a like a, a huge frustration, honestly, given the interconnections between all these people, it really feels viable. Mm-hmm. No one wants to hurt their close friend, and all these people are so closely connected within, like, four episodes. It's like, well... Yeah. <laughs> There's a very powerful relationship between the three kind of central characters to the story and when they're not all together they don't work Mm -hmm. you know like like by by Kaoru coming into Ritsuko and Sentaro's lives both of those characters who had been lifelong friends suddenly find their lives fuller and you know happier you know and more complete I think, uh, and you see that with like the way they treat each other. There's, yeah, yeah. You know, these are three people that very much love each other, and 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 there's a lot of fluidity in in, in in the definition of that love. I think at times, but the but the tenderness with which they treat each other, and and sort of the the really emotional reactions to some to to each other when one of them does something that upsets the other. I mean, it just kind of. You know, speaks to these are extremely close people, and and even though this is a twelve episode show, we're basically taken throughout their entire, you know, three years of high school life and and then some. Uh, so it, it, you know, I felt like it, it didn't undersell that and it didn't oversell that. I felt like it, you know, again, I think I feel like it hit that that just right balance of you know of the interpersonal dynamics of those three characters, even though. Uh, you know that whole all of all of the the melodrama can kind of you know I, I it can be onerous for people that aren't into that i'm i'm all about it i, I love this kind of stuff so mm-hmm. uh, you know um I, but but yeah i've i've seen this same device done way worse right. in good anime even yeah I mean, how often do you do you see like love triangles or love quadrangles or or whatever that that aren't like annoying or just frustrating and like bringing it down? Where like, yeah, I I never found myself tired or frustrated with with sort of all the little character dramas here. Yeah, and all the plot turns around those relationships, none of them were like insanely egregious. Um, you know, like. Like really bad melodrama is is when plot device things just happen like like rocks fall and someone dies kind of kind of stupid stuff you know like and I didn't feel like this show did that. No, it all happened between characters and under very mm-hmm. normal circumstances. And to the balance uh, Jared mentioned earlier, I do I do think it's worth pointing out that any imbalance is usually caused by all three main characters not being together. Mm-hmm. And I, that, that's a that's a really nice device, and I, I hope that's not overlooked by a lot of people who watch this or come to watch this. Yeah. But even the, even in the side story with uh, Brother June and his love interest, a lot of what happens is because of either external influences on the characters when the other is not around, and it's very real because when you're left to your own devices, doubts start to form. But when communication's there, you know you're a little more self-assured. 
Mm-hmm. And every one of these characters has like their their quote unquote weakness or their their shortcoming as a, as a character is I think very believable. Um, and it also directly like when there's when there's a conflict between the two characters, it's because of someone else's kind of personality flaw directly conflicts with someone else's personality flaw. Personality flaw isn't even the right way to express it sometimes. It's like just the the mind state that one character's in lines up in exactly the wrong way with the mind state that another character's in. They have a misunderstanding and 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 then there's this this distance created between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, life happens like that. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's that's not uncommon. Which is why I also applaud the ending. Uh, the way they handled it. Yeah, I love the ending. I, I don't think the the space that's generated between these characters is irresolvable. Uh, it's brought together multiple times during the series, so I don't think the conclusion is all that far out there. Yeah, I think it has a beautiful ending. I I have one kind of minor critique about it that I'm going to save for spoiler time, but I, I love this ending so much, and it... It ends just on this perfect kind of. I, I love endings like that where, you know, like a lot of things in in, in Japanese anime seem to. I, I don't know as opposed to any other kind of anime, but like they all that there can be like vague endings. I think you can argue that this is a somewhat vague ending, but it's the good kind of vague ending. It, you know, like you don't have to see anything more than you see because the main thing is there you know mm-hmm. but right. now i almost think we have to get into spoilers because i can't i don't know <laughs> I don't, like this if you have not seen the show i don't know why you're ta- listening to us blather about it like go go watch the show because uh it's really good and when in a very very short amount of time we start talking about the anime different anime of the decade like what's in the conversation for at least top 10 you better believe that this is going to be in my top 10 because it's that good so yeah yeah. i mean honestly when people ask like what's your top five music anime or whatever this show is always on the tip of my tongue but i had not watched this since the simulcast and honestly re-watching it for this podcast i realized just how strong it was i was like this is this is not only an example of music portrayed beautifully but it's also its influence portrayed beautifully and the the way the way in which it could be used as a tool and uh as as, you know conversation piece and healing and mentally it's it's wonderful it really is yeah my love's only grown for the show every time i watch it i like it more and more so spoiler time yeah everyone dies yeah i could not believe it i was so happy (laughs) yeah that meteor hit no one saw it coming Thanos just fucking kills everybody, man. Everybody. Even that damn bird that dies too. Everybody. And the US dies. invasion force. I mean <laughs> Um I, I you know, you bring that up in jest, but I, I I wanna I wanna talk about that. I really appreciated the complexity around the mixed heritage of Centauro. So Sentaro is the son of a Japanese woman and a U.S. serviceman 
he was basically abandoned by his actual parents and uh, taken in by his, I guess, stepfather. <laughs> um, and they don't really, they don't really spell it out, but it almost seems like, it almost seems like, the stepfather uh, had married the woman and the woman was unfaithful they don't like spell this out but this is kind of what i'm inferring Mm -hmm. because of the way kind of events happen um and then the 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 mom runs off runs away we don't really know where we do know that she runs away or leaves centauro to basically be taken care of by his stepdad and i think the stepdad's mother and the stepdad's sister eventually we don't really have a lot more context around it than that but the kind of antagonism that the father has towards Sentado at first makes me feel like that might have something to do with it I, I don't know the grandmother straight up like is just kind of racist about it um, and she dies somehow horribly with like bleeding out and like like this this actually okay here's one thing where it's a bit much like yeah in terms of the drama department now yeah. that i'm thinking about it this might be the one thing but like she dies and like she like leaves like bloody handprints on his face and it's just like holy shit really <laughs> like did we need to do all of that i mean like we had already established that that he was not welcome in this house and and that he was seen as a burden and you know that he was they used the word techie like enemy (laughs) like he is the child of the enemy and i mean you know in the context of the time that was 20 years after the second world war you know japan was just really starting to come around uh in the 1960s so um listen to you imperialist well i mean just starting to come around it's true like their economy was in ruins throughout the 50s they they rebuilt, and then by the 1960s, you really saw, you know, a lot of, and, and you know, without getting into the history lesson time, because I don't want to put anybody to sleep, but, you know, you really saw a lot of the rapid economic growth in Japan that you now see and have seen over the last 10 years in China, um, you know, as it's risen um, as, as a greater industrial power. Uh, Japan was like that in the 1960s and particularly in the 1970s so by the time the 1980s came around they were the world's second largest economy they were buying everything uh you know the large uh, conglomerates in japan were buying up movie studios and all kind of stuff so in the context of the 1960s yeah like you know you still got service people that probably within living memory fought (laughs) you know the japanese that that are at bases in japan so it's a very that's a very difficult situation and when you're a child that's born of that mixed heritage and you know you didn't like sign up for it (laughs) you know it's it's who you are um that's an incredibly difficult life to live and then they have to show this whole scene with the the mother dying and that's kind of like when the the stepfather starts hating on um centauro and we start to see his evolution from this you know really angelic looking young child to you know the tough you know brawling kid that he is as he you know matures and becomes a young man Mm -hmm. i think that's a scene that didn't really get enough time 
for explanation visually as it deserved, but I, I would love to unpack it because, like you've mentioned, the, the, the servicemen being um, a staple sort of in the community, and you get this uh, impression from the number of crowd shots where there are obviously American sailors walking around in their white uniforms throughout the crowd shots in the anime. Yeah. Uh, but in that scene where the grandmother you know, is hacking up blood and obviously dying, and uh, she confronts Sentaro, uh, turns around, it's more a redemption scene, uh, as, I, as I viewed it, because she was dying, and he was the only one to sort of see and take pity on her. And as she clung to him, she fell down. So she was, she was the, he was the last pillar that was available to her. And perhaps she realized that, perhaps she didn't, but that's how I read it. Like, she finally came to terms with, oh, you're an upstanding young man, no pun intended. And I, 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 I wept. <laughs> like, drama all aside, like, yeah, that the, the red the red handprints on his face and his white garb <laughs> was horrible. But that also explains the father's reaction when he comes home because he sees his, his son bloodied. And this is what I think really needed a little more elaboration. Mm. He sees his son's, uh, or half-son's, uh, face bloodied and uh, his garb bloodied and the dead mother. So automatically you as a viewer assume that the father assumes that he has killed her because of her hatred for him. And maybe that's what sparks the, the, the hatred between the two, not the mother necessarily leaving, or maybe the completion of the mother leaving and this new instance. Mm. But either way, I saw it from the grandmother's eyes as a redemption of Sentaro and a misunderstanding place between the father, uh, a further misunderstanding place between the father and Sentaro. Uh, Alex, how did you see that scene? Uh, honestly, um, Ink saying that kind of... Open my eyes a bit more to it, um, and I'd like to go back and rewatch it, uh, with knowing that, um, or just with that in the back of my mind, because just the, I think, the over the top, uh, ness, I mean, I was like, I just, I was like, is this suddenly becoming like Walking Dead? Like, it looks like a zombie, <laughs> zombie grandma here. Um, and that, so that would I was be a hell of so, a total shift for that show. Yeah, uh, right. So I was just so lost in like just that kind of over the top it just silliness to me a little bit um where i think the the weight and the um the the potential meaning there um was lost on me and i yeah i just think um because the show moves at such a brisk pace we we don't really get much time to kind of simmer in um centaro's past a bit and and really get that we get just like that small bit there so I, I feel I feel like you do. I, I want to go back and see that scene and try to see Ink's interpretation in that scene and kind of put myself in the perspective of the grandmother. I read that scene absolutely 180 degrees differently than Ink did. Like I I saw the grandmother crawling towards him as I'm dying. I'm gonna try to take you with me. I I hate you, you little you little child that is just this abomination and then she she can't i mean she's literally dying and like you know from hell's heart i stab at thee kind of at him and then she like dies in bloody super drama handprints uh and then the dad comes home and sees that and i don't think he thinks that they that they had a conflict i think he sees her having died and him standing there with the blood on him 
and he and he I this is my own interpretation of it. I think he sees that and he goes, "Okay, first you took my wife from me. Now you've taken my mother from me." That's mm. a good interpretation. You're done. I mm. you're dead to me now. Like I gave you the benefit of the doubt the first time, but now we're 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 over. Mm. And you know, that kind of you know, the 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 stepdad being abandoned, quote unquote. Um, you know, that sort of explains the kind of the downward spiral into the drinking and then, you know, he eventually he eventually leaves and we also know that he was abusive towards Centauro and uh the other small children as well. Um it would appear that 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 they were um you know, the the oldest of the small children, um I think it's uh Sayachan is his oldest uh Sachiko. Sachiko. Uh, is the oldest of of the the kids after Centaro, you know, she sort of remembers that same thing too. So when the dad comes home, there's all this tension, and then there's the and he's like, the dad's like, changed his ways and like regrets what he did, and that was where the pen scene led to. But but I I really kind of forget where I was going with that. But to say that uh, Centaro's heritage and the, the presence of the U.S. and really, if you think about it, the presence of jazz in this Japanese town, you know, you can imagine like people in Japan kind of turning up their nose at, at, at you know, particularly if you're in a, in a town that has a lot of interaction with the U.S. military, like Sasebo even to this day does, you know, you can imagine there being some tension and some of that tension kind of being channeled into, you know, oh, that's American music. But what they what they interestingly do is the with the scene where him where Sentaro and June and Kaoru uh, and then uh, Ritsuko's dad they all play together as a quartet is there's you know like blatant racism from some drunk gaijin guy. Uh, I hate that scene so much. <laughs> but you know, like in the mid 1960s, you know, prob- probably pertinent. Probably, yeah. uh, I mean. It's a it's a disturbing scene. It's a very difficult and challenging scene, but I, I don't think it was an inauthentic scene, because basically the the guy um, makes a disparaging remark about jazz in the context of it being uh, a music for art form pioneered by African Americans, and so he makes a reference to that in a very derogatory sense that I'm not going to repeat. But um, it it really just reinforces the 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 tension between the east and the west you know and Centauro kind of embodies that in a way the influence of jazz as as a, um, a sort of point of conflict I would argue is not there especially amongst the younger generations because when the when the ships rolled in uh, and sort of American influence came in after World War II, um, the same thing happened with literary culture. There was a huge influx, influx of uh, Eastern or Western European uh, poetry and literary uh, influence, and this allowed a lot of the youth who had no other outlet other than classical Japanese teachings and learnings uh, to express themselves differently. And I think that's why this kind of works is because you show uh, a youth culture 
uh, bent on self-expression that differentiates them from their parents. And jazz seems the very perfect point mm. to do so because it shares nothing to do with Japanese culture. Mm -hmm. So it's like, hey, I can use these new dissonant chords and variations on themes to express myself, and wah. Uh, and that, that sets the, the people who are willing to do uh, set themselves to that music against those who are going to school and performing in the traditional youth culture of their festivals and you know Japanese culture. Right, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah I think that I think the youth in particular completely agree that you know jazz is a form of rebellion to them, or in the way that you know young people want to set themselves apart from the generation that came before. You know, and you see even with the emergence of rock and roll in in the equation. As, as sort of the great rival faith to to jazz, um, it's um, it's another way to you know for for young people to sort of distance themselves from tradition. Mm -hmm. I do want to ask a question though. Given that okay, you're going to set jazz as a rebellious phase then, uh, and in that performance scene in the bar you mentioned with the uh, racial epithet that's mm -hmm. made. Uh, June sort of takes control and says, okay, we're just going to placate this drunken ass at the bar and we're going to play what he wants so we can sort of settle the mood and get everyone out of here on a, a complacent tone. How do you feel that settles June's character against the rest of his portrayal? Because he's rather erratic throughout the entire series. Right. I was going to say before you had said that, June is kind of the embodiment of of like the rebellion and that that sort of aspect of jazz um but the way he handles this i mean it seems sort of contrary a bit to his character um but at the same time and i don't know i think the dub watching the dub kind of uh screwed me up a little bit just because um they like really lay on the cool vibe real thick especially with the delivery and so, you know, I mean, him just trying to sort of uh, dissolve the tension in the room, um, you know, it's like, I don't know where I was going with that. Someone save me. Well, I will, uh, just to jump in on the point about June uh, being really, the, the delivery and the dub being really suave, which makes me want to listen to the dub now. Uh, mm. June, Junichi is, Brother June is played by Junichi Sawabe, who you may as well call Junichi Suave because he's always playing the suavest devil um, in pretty much everything like I think he has a very he, he has a very suave debonair de, uh, delivery of his lines too that fits in pretty well and, and I should also say he plays the suavest dude in any Watanabe thing mm -hmm. uh, the great and powerful dandy uh, mm -hmm. so uh, you know um that's that's absolutely his portrayal in Japanese too. He's the he's the cool older brother guy who yeah. kind of always has it under control and, until he doesn't anymore. Yeah, the the delivery and the dub like it's like I, I say that it's that like but like it sounds like the Japanese delivery was like like it was like authentic like it was like what they were going for with this. Like the the English dub is very much like that's what they like told this actor to do, and you can tell he's really trying to get. He's like, would you cats be hip to? And like everything's dragged out. Oh. 
Yeah. And um, so I found that distracting. Um, a, a, a bit more like they were really trying to um, show you or like hammer home that this guy is cool without it just like without it just feeling cool. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's not at all how it comes across in Japanese. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll need yeah. to rewatch it. That's unfortunate because Jun is actually at least. I, I love his downfall as a character. Mm. I think that's realistically portrayed because he he is in and out of the series and he reappears just in, in, uh, incrementally miserable each time. And like you'll you'll see him out of phase for a couple episodes and they'll pop back in and he's reached a new low and then he furthers that low and then he furs the, furthers right. that low and his only redemption is in that latter part of the series. And even then, he's still dragging an innocent along with him <laughs> to his unknown explorations, but at least he's, you know, on a better track. Mm -hmm. uh, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. But to that, to that fact, since you watched the dub, uh, I do have to ask, how is, or how do they treat um, my favorite things being sung in English as opposed to, by Ritsuko, as opposed right. to uh, a Japanese actress actually phonetically singing my favorite things in English? Right, and that was, like, even before I had uh, started watching, like, that was something, like, I knew I wanted to keep an eye on. Um, and so during that episode, it just, it's like they just, they pulled, they straight up lifted the Japanese track from the original version and just dropped it in. Um, oh. Which is just, yeah, really uh, not, yeah, it was very jarring. Um, and then also the uh, the small portion after when they're asking, um, I think she asks Santaro what are his favorite things, and then he sings it. Um, they literally just drop in him singing in Japanese. Um, ah. Which ugh. which it's funny because she follows up by saying something like, "What are you talking about?" or "What did you say?" in both the Japanese and English. So it kind of works. He's like, "What are you saying? Like, why are you breaking out in another language?" But it, yeah, it's it's not it's not ideal. And then also the same thing with uh, Brother June in the uh, in that bar scene when he sings. It's like they, I guess they, the voice actors they hired couldn't sing, didn't want to sing, or they just thought, you know, um, we'll just drop in, whatever. Oh. So yeah, that that took me out. That's like the worst possible option they could have opted for that dub. That is know? painful. That is painful. Oh man, yeah. I don't know how I feel about listening to this on top now. Oh, oh. Um, the oh, main character um, who plays uh, uh, Kaoru, he also um, he's the voice of Welcome to the NHK in the um, in that dub. Because um, I was like trying to place him, so I, I looked him up mm. and um, kind of interesting. I guess they maybe saw some similarities with just like sort of an anxious protagonist. Um, kind of vibe um but i don't know i yeah i really those that sequence where they drop in the japanese tracks and then brother june were the two kind of big blemishes on the uh on the dub for me otherwise it was serviceable but not one that i'd like recommend mm. so uh in the extras uh on the discs from sentai watanabe and uh, Kano both echoed the fact that they wanted to really create a legendary scene with that school festival performance, and only that—that that, that's the—that's the thing they concentrated on as as the epitome of their of their creative efforts. 
uh, as something as being legendary. Do you think that that scene is legendary, or is there something more? I think that is sort of the shining moment of the show, um, just from, well, I don't know, there's so many, but like when I go back to it, even like I was, um, I'm home right now visiting family, and I had watched, I had actually shown this to my mom a while ago, and I just showed her that sequence again, just like, do you remember, like, do you remember the show? And like, and that was immediately the sequence I brought, just because it is, it's just that wonderful um, reunion of those two characters, like, and not even just the music sequence, but then the uh, the track that comes in after they stop playing, and Centaro grabs his hand, like give Lou like the five high high five, um, the grabbing his hand and then pulling him pulling him and then them just running and then lifting their hands. It's just like it's this moment of triumph and like uh, I don't know um, I don't know what it is, but it just it like perfectly encapsulates sort of. That, that healing power of music, which I think is sort of one of the main themes or ideas the show is trying to get across. But I don't know. Um, do you guys feel similarly? Do you do you think that it's the standout scene or that it's just one of many? I mean, it's a pretty it's a pretty powerful scene from the from the narrative perspective of the show, and and really kind of a a climactic moment really. Because it's it's sort of the manifestation of the world seeing their talent, and mm. once once they're I mean in their tiny little world, the high school once once they they kind of show out at that performance, they're they're they kind of instantly become two of the most popular dudes in the school, even though they were both kind of outcasts before. Right. So it it does some pretty interesting things from from that dynamic. And, and sort of flips the narrative on its head kind of at the halfway point or more than the halfway point of, of the series. Um, it's a it's an interesting moment, too, because you're not entirely sure where some aspects of the plot may go. And by some, I mean, like, you know, Yurika is standing there watching the performance and it, it sort of draws her in to listening to the performance where at first she she didn't want to really show herself which we don't really know why until way later when it was revealed that you know her and june kind of had a moment <laughs> before that and she feels guilty about it because she knows that Santaro has feelings for her and all this stuff and we're pretty sure or at least i was pretty sure that she had some feelings for Santaro too but they kind of they kind of lost out to to the feelings that she also had for june so that moment it kind of it kind of opened up the story in a way to where it looked like there was a couple of different directions this thing could go even though when you know kind of how it ends you go oh okay this was the trajectory all along i don't know if it's my favorite though what i loved about uh uh Yurika is uh as you mentioned her her sort of hesitance to join the crowd was not the fact that you know, all this stuff is going around, but the fact that she doesn't really know who she is. Uh, she got together with June for a more physical reason at first, but uh, the, the fact that he was willing to take steps forward in that relationship as opposed to the traditional, you know, oh, well, let's hold hands first. No, he just leans forwards and kissed her because he wanted to kiss her, and she falls in love with that forwardness, but 
the fact that, like you mentioned, she she had maybe had sidelined feeling for Sentaro too, who was this you know physically gorgeous male, but maybe didn't mean so much to her. Spoke a lot to to who her character really wanted to be, whether she was just this sort of youth who was enthralled with the physical or something more. And the fact that she falls, inevitably falls for June, speaks to the fact that she really wanted something more. Because Sentaro is in the moment, uh, all passion, whereas June is all passion, but aimed more towards the future. And being from the background that she is, sort of a more upper class, quote-unquote, rich girl. Mm. Um, I think it really speaks to her choice of love interest that she goes with June, even though it, feel, it feels really fickle throughout the anime. Uh, like, why is she falling for this bad boy, even though that's kind of traditionally how it goes. Uh, I, I like her path and her choices, and I think they're defined well. Yeah. I, mm. I think Yurika is one of the most, maybe the most, of the the teens in the show or even the the young adults in the show she is the most mature definitely in her outlook and in her in her expression in her thoughts um you know she she does fall for june i think part of what she falls for june for is he's he's got this air of sophistication about him he's got this maturity about him that kind of draws her in you know he's also kind of forward with her and um, I think that, you know, maybe has something to do with it. She, she, you know, seems to be attracted to that in him too. But um, when you look at the three lead kind of main characters in the story, all of them are wrestling with their own immaturity in different ways. And Yurika's not doing that. She's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she is, she kind of knows who she is. And once she meets this person who you know connects with her on so many levels she decides that's what that's who she wants that's who she's going after you know and she kind of rebels in her own way um you know which was refreshing to see i think uh, her and ritsuko are really interesting contrasts because ritsuko spends the entire show trying to figure out who she is and you know, what Ritsuko has to learn how to do and her conflict is she has to learn to live without these these two boys that she loves in different ways. And that's kind of the arc that she makes is eventually learning to not just be kind of the the girl who takes care of these two idiots <laughs> you know, which she frequently is doing, but like she has to kind of learn to like be her own person more and kind of live for herself more in a way that I don't think she could up until, you know, the end of the story where it's kind of clear that she's done that. Um, so I, I think with Yurika and June, it was more or less like two kindred spirits that finally kind of found their other half, you know, and, and I like I like the fact that they resolved that story the way they did. I like the whole eloping thing. You know, usually that's something that you don't see as much. I mean, even in the modern day, that would be a scandalous thing. Imagine back then, <laughs> you know, what that was like. Even even the, 
the the fact that the focus of the show is in this setting of Kyushu, and the fact that they elope outside of that in Tokyo, and the conclusion draws you back to Tokyo, mm-hmm. and the fact that they live there now and they are a thing there, I really like that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things to kind of draw the opposite parallel. The, one of the things that kind of brings Kaoru and Ritsuko together is the fact that they both kind of have this sense of duty. Kaoru has this sense of duty to study hard and get into a great school and go be a doctor and because he's kind of since since dad's done the sailor thing and they don't really explain his, his whole situation very well at all because like mm. if 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 he comes from this well-to-do family, why is dad like suddenly picking up and like living the life of a merchant marine or whatever, you, you know, to mm. and and kind of abandoning Kaoru when you know Kaoru's mother left, and we don't really know why. Um, it seems like there's a whole like prequel mm. <laughs> that could it could have been done around that, and and it's kind of nice that you have that kind of that depth and complexity that you you kind of were just shoved into the middle of, but I wish there was a little bit more backstory yeah. on that. I actually just, um, now that we're kind of on that, I, I did want to talk a little bit and just kind of get your thoughts on the whole trip Kaoru takes to see his mother and that exchange. And, um, yeah, I just, I found it so perplexing and the way in which it sort of concludes where she's like, She's laughing at the thought of her little son having a broken heart, and then he laughs, and it's almost played off like it's, uh, I don't know, like they're, like they're reconnecting, and it's sort of like a happy moment. But for me, it just, I don't, I, I mean, maybe I was misreading it, but I don't know. Like for me internally, I was like, this is like, this is so sad and tragic that, you know, you've, you've skipped out on your son's life, and it's, I don't know. I think it's great in that it reads simultaneously. Yeah. Like, exactly like you said. Like, it, it really does come across as, you should not be bringing this up right now. But at the same time, Kaoru has grown so much that he can accept this sort of uh, conversation with his unknown mother mm-hmm. uh, as to the state of his current emotional situation because the, you know, it has been so long, because mm-hmm. this much time has passed. And he is now the grown-up that he should be and could carry on this grown-up conversation. I thought that really came across well, mm. even though it was unexplained and seemed like... I grew up in, in a broken household. My, my mom and dad divorced when I was six. Um, so I get the whole broken family thing, mm-hmm. and I get the two, two visions of who your son should be and one parent who is separated and has this vision but uh, a sort of a a distanced one Mm -hmm. and when they reconnect like who are you and you kind of have to explain and Mm -hmm. when you have to explain inevitably there's some reconnection and that that restaurant scene to me was kind of perfect especially when Sentaro says oh okay well the weather's dried up I'm gonna go and leave you two alone uh, because this is obviously a deeper conversation that in, that does not involve me, and I thought that scene was really well done. Mm. And a super yeah. awkward scene too, because they basically they don't like 
spell all this out, but they they kind of strongly allude to the fact that that Kaoru's mother basically works in a hostess bar or something like that. I thought it was a jazz club. Mm. Like she sang at a jazz club, right? I don't remember anything about a jazz club. Like the the way I don't know, like the way that like it, that the name of it was like the Blue Butterfly or something, and they had like I I, I want to go back and look at like the the sort of the price board they had to see if I could figure out like oh. if my hunch is right, but like because that was the way I read that scene mm-hmm. and I could totally have misread that scene, but like the only people you ever see associated with that are two like you know smartly dressed ladies. One of which being Kaoru's mother. So I don't, I don't know. I wish we would have again. I wish we would have had more context mm. for that to really know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that might have been either not included in the original work, or they might have not had time to do it. Mm. Um, which I will not begrudge their editing choices at all. I think they did. I, I, I've not read the manga. I would absolutely love to read this manga, um, but my my sense is that they. They they had to cut some things, and the way they cut it, I think, was terrific. Right. Yeah, because in in the anime, I think there was a reference to her singing. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. I don't think it was in context of the club, but I think it was yeah. to her singing along with jazz. When they when they have lunch, there's a mention of Kaoru having a distant memory of his mom singing, mm-hmm. and I I think it. I forget exactly what it, what it was she was singing. Um, and when they say goodbye at the station, um, does he give her a record or he gives her lyrics or something um, for her to to practice? Yeah, he um, gives her a record to okay. listen to. Yeah, yeah. And as yeah, and he's like, you know, I'll come see you again, and you know, you better have practiced. And the way she looks at him and says goodbye, and you know. Um, I don't know if she thanks him for coming to see her or finding her. There's this sadness in her face that's it's kind of like, I'm not going to see, like, there's this hope that he's, like, the, there's this start of this relationship, but, I, and this is just what I read from the scene, but it seemed like she was, like, kind of goodbye again. Like, I don't plan to see, like, I don't know if it was just her lifestyle, like, she wants to keep herself separate from him, or um, what? It's kind of both. I, I read it the same as you. It was a definite goodbye. It was, I know I'm not going to see you again due to life and circumstance. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're going one direction, I am totally going another, which feeds into the, the hostess thing. Mm-hmm. Which, so I, yeah, that that's kind of the way I interpret it, too, is that that was, a, that was a permanent separation, even though you would think in the context of the later part of the story that Dr. Kaoru could go check in on mom, like, whatever he felt like, because he moves to Tokyo. Okay, and how sudden was that? Like, he wants to be a doctor? Like, where the hell does that come they, from? They telegraphed that in the very first episode. Really? Yeah, the yeah. aunt, the, yeah. the overbearing aunt says, you know, we're going to make sure he studies so he can become a doctor or something, you know, lucrative for the family. And, uh, I totally missed that. Yeah. 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 Because I thought I thought that came out of left field, and that was one of the things I hated about the ending. I was nope, like, nope. "Well, okay, I can buy it, but where did it come from?" That's totally that's totally part of that whole sense of duty and obligation thing that Kaoru has. So let's let's talk about the ending. So we have 
the the climax of this thing sets up so beautifully where it's their third year of high school they're getting ready for a rematch in the talent show the the culture festival against the their their kind of buddies who are playing you know rock music and they've convinced Ritsko's dad to play bass for them and they've convinced Ritsko to sing for them and they're going to do kind of a jazzy version of my favorite things and and we we get to hear uh the voice actress who plays Ritsko sing that and kind of and it was really cool um it was totally awesome it's not kind of cool it's totally awesome but Mm. then but then like drama happens and that never comes to pass because uh Sentaro is is involved in a car accident and this is where it kind of telegraphs like classic anime teen drama bullcrap about to ensue but it actually turns out that Sentaro's okay but his uh oldest uh his oldest uh younger sibling uh is is badly hurt and he blames himself for it of course and he uh disappears leaving behind the rosary he wears by the way he and Ritsko are catholic <laughs> i don't mm. think we've talked about that it's kind of a big deal they yeah. talk about, they show it a lot uh throughout the series for a good reason and and so they they all kind of end up going their separate ways by degrees but let's let's talk about that like that that final act what 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 are y'all's thoughts hold on one second let's talk about the catholicism aspect for a bit because that is actually important and mm. it's important specifically to the development of uh Sentaro's character and Ritsuko's character because they are both christian and that is a the definitely minority religion over in japan but it speaks to how much it speaks to how humble and how forgiving and how I want to say complacent they are to how much the other characters sort of impose themselves on that family. Could you elaborate a little bit? Okay, so Christianity supposedly preaches like turn the other cheek, expect uh, you know, accept your enemies as your friends, you know. And that sort of attitude really encapsulates how they take in uh, Kaoru. Oh, right. he's a really antagonistic character in the fact that he doesn't want to be taken in, but they accept his shortcomings, and they you know, make him part of the family. Mm-hmm. And that's very important for when Kaoru discovers they're Christian, they're sort of like, oh, wow, they're part of this minority religion and that comes in in the latter half of the anime when you know they all reunite and it's okay to come in and just disrupt this church because i'm reuniting with friend and i will be forgiven and this slight discrepancy is allowable because of the love you get a lot of that and i think that's very important Yeah, I don't know why I hadn't like really thought about that or put that together, but I, I think that's an interesting point. Mm. I could be reading a lot more into it than it is, but it, it, since they bothered to really, you know, set aside that family or those families as a different religion, it seems kind of important. Yeah, and with with it not being a prominent religion in Japan, 
I did sort of appreciate its portrayal as not something super weird or foreign. And it's it's interesting how Kaoru's sees them and he's like, oh wow, they're Christian, and it's and that's sort of that, you know. And then you sort of see their values, um, uh, Richans and Sens in like you said, the way they are welcoming and um, open um, and inviting to Kauru. And also the children and the community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that reaches out also to uh, how Sentaro, his uh, life path leads towards caring towards children of this community who cannot care for themselves. That's always been sort of a, a center pillar mm-hmm. of Christianity, even though like it's also ruined other <laughs> lives but uh, you know that's been sort of the staple of what it's about even though if not how it's uh, how it's actuated sorry no no that's <laughs> an interesting point to bring up I, and I do think it kind of it, it helps give a sense of how open and welcoming they both are to Kaoru you know like I think it helps explain and helps contextualize that a bit. But, you know, like, they're what's I think is interesting about Sentaro and Ritsuko is they, they're actually, like, practicing, like, Catholics, which, you know, a lot of times in Japan, like, in a broad sense, I mean, you certainly have people that, that are, you know, devout, you know, followers of Christianity in that country, but, like, you know, in a broader kind of pop cultural sense, it's more of the aesthetic that is intriguing to 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 people in Japan. Like, a lot, plenty of people in Japan will have Western Christian style weddings, and and they, you know, they're not Christian. <laughs> they just they like that aesthetic. You know, mm-hmm. um, they'll they'll even hire you know, foreign you know English speaking people to officiate that may or may not actually be able to officiate a, a as a as an official recognized man or woman of the cloth but uh, you know it's there's an odd kind of fascination with the aesthetic but but here you have like two honest to goodness practicing catholics that you know that has to inform how they think and how they feel and you know maybe maybe that that goes a bit deeper in the show than I've thought about before. That's interesting. Mm. Sorry, I totally forgot about what track we were on before that. Mm. Well, even just the... Um, I'm thinking back to the rooftop scene and the way it sort of mirrors the beginning with him pulling the sheet off of Centaro. Oh, yeah. And, um, and then just telling him it's okay to cry. And I just... that was That was a powerful moment. I think mm-hmm. for those two characters, and I don't know. Does any anything profound come to you out of that specifically? When I was watching, the first thing I thought of on all the rooftop or, or all the uh, declothing <laughs> scenes uh, was, okay, are they are they taking off the burial shroud off of Jesus every time? <laughs> and, like I'm I'm not Christian. I'm I'm you know agnostic but uh every every time they took the shroud off of rintaro or centaro sorry um (laughs) 
I, I, I found myself thinking like this is this is obviously taking the the, the burial shroud off and uh, maybe a resurrection of sorts and perhaps it plays uh, to that certain times throughout the anime I haven't actually thought about that mm. but uh, every time they took they threw the sheet off of Centaro I, I thought that exact same thing I just didn't bother to think about it at mm. the time I had not thought about that that particular bit of symbology at all um, but maybe maybe that's maybe that's an intentional thing I don't I don't think the religious symbology in this show is anything near like you know giant exploding laser crosses <laughs> or anything <laughs> like that but um, but but there yeah I mean you can I think you can definitely draw some parallels uh, to that that's that's a very interesting take on that mm. though yeah um, so we were we were talking about the ending and the effectiveness I think of the ending did you guys get a sense that the the way that Kaoru and Ritsuko's romance sort of you know, reaches its sort of ultimate and for the for the purposes of the anime indefinite conclusion did you did you guys find that satisfying I did yeah, I did. When I looked it up and saw that they got married and, you know, have a kid in the manga, I was glad that that wasn't included in the anime. I like the ambiguity at the end. So Same. I feel like, yeah, and I feel like that would sort of undermine so much of what the show, like, just just the importance of the three of them and that connection that they have. Mm-hmm. I'd have to agree. The, the, the smile of Ritsuko mm -hmm. at the end, just after facing both of the, the both of the other kids coming down the slope and meeting her, just that smile says it all. Yeah. Like, I've rewound that sequence so many times just to catch that smile again. Just yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. That's for those who are now in the spoiler section, that's the scene I was talking about with the characterization that's just and the subtlety that's just so good in this show is that that right there at the very end she goes from sort of shock and surprise to almost crying from from just the the, the realization that oh my god we're all together again to this just this perfect smile of joy of just girlish joy it's it, it just absolutely perfect and thank God she doesn't actually cry. I like the fact that she doesn't well up with tears or anything. That is just a very happy meeting of these three people. Yeah. There's this sense of, like, like peace on her face. Like, this, mm -hmm. like, where it's just, like, ah. Uh, like, it's, like, just, like, throughout the whole series, it was, anytime those two had their squabbles, it was, like, she was that anchor that was, like, trying to rein them back in, you know? And it's, mm -hmm. like... And then they're they're together again, and it's like no, it's like time is irrelevant. You know, it's just like, yeah, I don't know. I love, I just, I love the that ending. It has such a, it, the ending is so good, so good. And the the intro song is kind of playing over the ending, um, and the Centaro and Kaoru are running down a slope. It's mm -hmm. freaking perfect. It's just yeah. so perfect. It, yeah, the way they ran from the church reminded me a little bit of the way they they ran after that concert, you know. Yeah, I think that's absolutely mm. the intended parallel yeah. too. A new kind of start to their relationship, and mm. uh, oh god, I just love it so much. Like when when you put in the notes 
that in the manga they they get married and have a kid Kaoru and Ritsuko I was like super happy because like in my own personal kind of figuring out of what happens you know that's yeah. totally what I wanted to happen mm-hmm. and I but for dramatic reasons I'm so glad they leave it they leave it on that sort of unresolved note which is kind of like what you do in music you leave, like you leave things on an unresolved note when you mm. not all not all songs but many songs do that and I feel like it was just a very just pitch perfect uh ending to the series and did you guys like did you guys see Centauro becoming a priest coming I did not but uh I I think it largely is foreshadowed in the fact that he you know does not graduate high school and has a love of community and children and you know, needs to find some path forward with that. I think the church is an obvious, right. or religion in general is an obvious place for that because mm-hmm. you know you care about humanity and raising the next generation with good moral values, etc. And Centaro's obviously a good, you know, big brother slash father figure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, despite his shortcomings and his. Uh, outlashes of emotion the kids love him because they you know Centaur is basically a big kid so it fits naturally yeah yeah it didn't occur to me I don't think while watching but in that yeah that those last few minutes where it all comes to into place it just it was like oh right of course this just this is right I love that photo of him where, you know where he's mm. cut off above, mm-hmm. you know, below the shoulders mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just like oh it's the second person from the left it's like oh, obviously the guy with yeah. his head cut off <laughs> <laughs> yeah the I, I was a little surprised by that because there's the symbolism of him leaving the rosary behind um, when he disappears and so you know, as I'm want to do, I usually try to fill in plot holes in my mind, and like, and even though that's not so much of a plot hole, maybe a plot gap that is not explained. But, but I imagine he has some sort of dark period where he's wandering in the wilderness, you know, to bring it back mm-hmm. to, to pseudo religious terms, and has that realization, and and maybe the only place he feels like he has a home is is in the church, you know. Because it's, is it? Like eight years that yeah elapsed yeah yeah so you're talking mid seventies by this point yeah and I can totally buy that like right. if 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 by leaving behind the rosary Centaro is saying I need to experience more things to justify my path in life it's it's I'm going to say it's more like the um, I forget the name for the rite of passage of the um, the Pennsylvania Dutch community. Oh, the Amish. Yeah. The thing they do. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I know what you're talking uh, about. It's more aligned, uh, more along the lines of that. It's like, okay, go experience the world and then come back. Mm. Right. And see, you know, which world is better, which world speaks to you more, helps more. I, I like that sort of reading of it where he, you know, abandons it because of this personal tragedy, then goes out into the world, experiences... The, the the horribleness of it and then comes back to help others mm. that he has personally experienced in this community and then continues to help 
the further generations. I, I really like that reading of it. And it really does fit his character. Yeah. It's it's not out of left field. It's just, uh, like you guys have right. said, uh, unexplained. And that rosary, was it It was his mother's? Yeah. But I'm wondering if there's there's something more there just with, I don't know... Because when he, when he when the um, after the accident and his sister um, is injured, he says, you know, why is you know everything like why every, like everything I do, you know, I cause problems or I hurt people, um, and I think that's even echoing back to whatever guilt was wrongfully instilled on him, you know, whether it was with the mother or you know possibly even with you know the grandmother, sort of like just. Um, all of that sort of instilled in him and then him leaving that rosary behind, leaving leaving that behind. I don't know. I, I'm kind of just spitballing. Like, but I think that's a great interpretation, though. Um, yeah. So my only gripe about the ending is the fact that there's this chance encounter between Kaoru and a slightly pregnant uh, Yurika who turns out you know, she eloped with June, uh, and they are, you know, eight years later, you know, actually probably more for for them since they they eloped like I think a bit before the end of the school year for the third years anyway. So eight years later, Kaoru and Yurika have this chance encounter in a hospital where he's working, uh, and she got a photo from somebody who from a friend of hers who said she was at a wedding and she saw a guy that looked a lot like Sentaro and she just so happens to have the right. photo. Right. too coincidental. Yeah, yeah. It just yeah. so happens to, to run into um, in, into uh, Kaoru. I, I feel like that feels like a very dramatic near the end of a manga series kind of thing to have happened. But like I feel like that could have been done much easier by just, you know, Yurika and June live in Tokyo, Kaoru lives in Tokyo, maybe at some point in the eight years they've reconnected, maybe they get together and, oh, by the way, blah, 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 happens, and, and, and you know, he then he gets the photo, and oh my god, you know, and then he, like, goes on his vision quest to go find Sentaro, which is the way that, I mean, the anime, like, progresses that way, like, they have this chance encounter. She explains about, you know, having a clue as to Sentaro's whereabouts because, you know, he, he went off the grid basically for all intents and purposes. Then Kaoru basically, you know, like it, it, they're trying to wrap up. They don't have a lot of time left in the episode and they're trying to wrap things up. And I get it that there's like almost a smash cut to Kaoru getting on a train <laughs> and like, you know, taking like trains, planes, and automobiles back mm. to to this little island where where Sentaro is and in the moment I don't care because I want to see that reunion you know right so like the power of it all emotionally kind of overpowers the inherent just sort of kludginess of that bit which is more or less the point of the anime yeah you yeah. know it's 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 emotion over logic Oh yeah, it's it's feeling being portrayed and conveyed between people as opposed to you know hey this should be done then, but I totally agree. Like mm-hmm. it it feels rushed. It feels not 
within Logic's point of view at all. There was even like a tiny Easter egg, I think, with the train scene that I did not notice the first time that I totally noticed the second time. I'm pretty sure, like, it's not like completely obvious, but I'm pretty sure in that smash cut to Kaoru getting on a train, there's a train conductor guy, and he mm-hmm. turns around, and he's this sort of pudgy dude with glasses. Yes. And yep. I swear to God that that's, that that's the kid you, from their class. <laughs> I love that. I only caught that during the second viewing, too. I saw that last night, and I went, holy shit. <laughs> they even fit him in here. And if you notice, he is uh, that, that train is a blue train, which is how that character is initially... Well, not initially, actually. It's the second... Uh, he, he talks uh, about the trains with great precision and detail. Yeah, but yeah. specifically the blue trains. And why specifically blue, the blue trains? Because it's a uh, John Coltrane album where it's his first lead on an album. Uh, and that's worked so well into the series. And I'm, 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 I'm convinced a lot of the albums and a lot of the uh, references there, too, are really slid in slyly because... Uh, in the first episode, the blue trains are mentioned. Uh, I think it's uh, Kaoru's first time where he takes the lead in the first step in a in a relationship with someone. But uh, I'm, I'm not too sure on that. But it's 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 a really slightly slid in reference, and the the callback to it with that pudgy uh, conductor being uh, conducting him on the uh, the blue train line is, is a great thing. Mm. Do you guys feel like the sort of kind of breakup scene between Kaoru and Ritsuko was believable? That's where, that's where, like, this is after Sentaro has disappeared and they're beginning to accept that he's gone and Kaoru wants to be more intimate with, with uh, Ritsuko. Not like in a overly pronounced way, but it's it's a bit. Uh, it's, um, yeah. It seemed out of character um, for him, I, and yeah. I don't know if it's just, you know, he could be. I mean, I don't know, mix of emotions like with him leaving and Centaro being gone. It's like he's just not acting uh, like he normally would. I, mm-hmm. You can kind of explain it away. It just felt to me just a bit too out of character. Mm-hmm. It's it's actually a callback. If you go back a little further in the series with June and the uh, high school girl, oh, um, it's it's exactly that scene, but it's not played out that way. Where June recognizes that she's forced, or uh, she recognizes that June's forcing himself on her that way just to destroy the relationship. Right. right. Because in that scene where. Uh, Kaoru is forcing himself on Ritsuko. It's the exact same reason, but it's not observed the same way. Mm-hmm. So she's observing him uh, realistically as some sort of, you know, over-enthused monster, and he's realistically getting his intentions across. Like, he wants distance between him and her so they can both heal and grow apart. Which actually leads into that great separation of the ending. Well, and the very next scene where she's sort of like gone to collect herself, he decides, yeah, I should probably leave. 
And then he does this kind of asshole thing where he just drops, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm going to a college in Tokyo. (laughs) (laughs) Love me forever. I'm leaving you. Yeah, which, (laughs) you know, I I struggled with that a bit, that scene, both times that I watched it. Um, You know, I'm not very sympathetic towards Kaoru in that scene, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that, you know, Kaoru left to his own devices he has a tendency to be self-destructive, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that this was partly motivated by him wanting to just burn it all down because he was angry and depressed. And, and so is Ritsuko, right? Like, they're both trying to cope with the loss of this very important person in their life. Yeah, but Ritsuko's not trying to burn it all down. No, she's trying to keep it all together, which is what she does, right? Mm. But 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 Kaoru, this is one of those times where personalities align just right for them to be completely misaligned, and you know their two kind of urges, their kind of their kind of character quirks, you know, come in direct conflict with each other and leads to the great breakup, where you know she still kind of does the very dramatic like almost misses him at the train station and kind of does but they see each other one last time and they share this like Kaoru has this sort of really sad look on his face he tears up but but Ritsuko kind of just gives him this smile and this wave and you know puts on a brave face but I think also that moment sort of shows where she's figured out that hey I've got to I've, I've got to quit trying to save everybody and I got to just let these these two people that i care about so much go and live my life okay i've got to disagree at some point because there's that that whole thing of you know the 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 goodbyes between ritsuko's father and her and karu's uh family and him at the uh the parting of train and then Ritsuko follows in that, you know, horribly cliche tracing, uh, chasing after the train while it's departing. But I love the fact that he's, you know, running car after car to see a portion of her visage and only manages to catch her at the trail end, the, uh, the, 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 the last car on the train, and sees her still, you know, at the, the very end of the platform, just waiting for him to wave goodbye as some sort of formality of breakup and a a very formal conclusion to their relationship and just waving goodbye with tears in her eyes and they're both teary-eyed and it's it's kind of perfect because he never sees the whole of her until he's finally without uh, a possible embrace of distance. Mm. Did any of you guys get like really choked up when the dad when Ritsuko's dad said bye to him. Because <laughs> to me, that was almost harder than... Yeah, than that my... was emotional. <laughs> that I, was hard. I love I love that dad. He's... I mean, yeah, as far as... Pa- like, he's, like, the only parent, like, that's, like, present and active. Yeah. And Ritsuko's the only one of them that has any kind of wholesome, healthy relationship with a parent. <laughs> yeah. Pops is awesome. Yeah, he's like sort of all of their dad. <laughs> yeah. Best unsung anime so. dad right there. Pops from Kids on the Slope. 
So as we're reaching um, a little over uh, an hour and three quarters or so, shall we get to Twitter questions? Yeah. Unless there's anything else you guys have to say about kids on the slope in general. I think you want for hours. Yeah. I mean, I I, haven't touched on, but it's just, yeah, it's such a dense show. Yeah. Surprisingly so, right? Yeah. For what it is? Absolutely. I think that's the hallmark of a great show. Yeah. So we should keep ours as equally as short, and let's get to Twitter questions. So uh, from Danny or Infinite Bagel, which is a fantastic Twitter handle, by the way. Uh, I'm a musician, and I really appreciate that they animated all the instrumental playing uh, with true-to-life accuracy. Do you have any insight to the method they used, uh, such as whether it involved rot- rotoscoping or 3D elements? I've never seen such much information on it. I think we covered this. Yep. Yeah, that's the bit with the ten cameras that they yeah. filmed them all mm-hmm. with. Yeah. Uh, this is from uh, I'm gonna, I hope I'm gonna say this right. Panio at Paniodes, which I like that too. I got the impression that when I watched that the whole last part had a lot of signals that looked like it was meaning this that Kaoru would finally get together with the love of his life and all the heavens were blessing the union. That ending dot 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 after receiving the news about Centaro's whereabouts from a pregnant woman, which is Yurika, to be clear. Uh, Kaoru uh, reunites with Sentaro in the church with Ritsuko as a witness in formal attire, the children watching, the sun shining above them, music called Moaning Playing. It was gay, right? And gay is, like, kind of air-quoted. Alex, what you think? Yeah, I just... I, I That was not my read at all. Um, and, yeah, I don't... Um, I, yeah, that just wasn't my read. I didn't. I don't really see that in in the sequence. See, I saw it as more as a callback, because there's a lot of intimate moments between Karu and Sentaro that could be called like yaoi baiting, but they really come down to situations where two kids who can't really deal with many other people in the world break the walls between them, and their mutual affection for one another is made known. Uh, to be true and his friends and that that makes all the more sense given their mutual abandonment issues uh, so yeah if you want to view intimacy between two guys as quote unquote gay sure but really it's just heart to heart relation yeah I think there can be I, I mean like certainly you know Kirk and Spock are like the best of friends in Star Trek, and that has never stopped fanficers ever, nor should it. <laughs> nor should it. Um, and I think there's kind of a similar dynamic at play here. I think this is very much brotherly love uh, between mm-hmm. two young men who share so much pain in common and understand each other in a way that really nobody else can. Uh, and so the you can have intimacy with close friends without it being necessarily sexual in nature. And I know that's an obvious thing to say, but I, I think in this case that this is really one of those cases where, you know, this is um, filial love uh, between like two people that see each other as brothers, really uh, uh, more than it's, it's anything, uh, you know, sexual. Although again, you know, head cannon your heart out, to this thing if, if that's <laughs> you know what grabs you about it um, I, I think just to kind of like take a step 
outside the context of the question, the the love that like you know Ritsko loves both of these guys. At first, she loves. It's kind of weird. Like her feelings kind of flip throughout the show. Mm-hmm. So like she starts out in love with Sentaro in this sort of you know I've always loved this this guy kind of grown up with him kind of way and she sort of just I think thought she would always get together with him so when he starts to fall in love with Yurika it like really rocks her world and she's not sure what to do and at the same time you know she rejects Kaoru uh, which that's kind of a big dynamic between them uh, throughout the series is that initial rejection she rejects Kaoru because of her feelings for Sentaro and over the course of the show as she comes to terms with her feelings not being requited with with Sentaro, she begins to understand and realize that oh wait no i am in love with Kaoru. like you know she starts to realize kind of just how she feels about him so by the end of the show you know she loves both of these young men for for different reasons different ways but like she wants them to be together you know and she sees how much those two men care about each other and how much better they make each other and that makes her like really happy uh and so that's why the ending is so powerful it's it's not that she's like you know giving away the bride it's that she's reuniting with these men that she loves so much that were such a big part of her life at a at a very very important part in her life that are her life yeah yeah in a lot of ways you know she she doesn't know what to do without him i think she learns that kind of like centauro finds his path and his true calling and kind of like how Kaori at the very end comes to realize that, hey, I've done my duty, my family duty thing. I can, I can, you know, live the way I want now. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the manga he moves from Tokyo back down to being some, you know, country doctor just so he could be close to them. That's actually really interesting to me, though, because I, I, now I'm wondering how it comes in the manga that Kaoru... Uh, comes to be reunited and marries uh, his love interest right. because they've se- been separated for so long and grown apart for so long. Is their coming together really unrealistic? Because I like the ambiguity in the anime and the fact that it's just three friends coming together for the final time. Right. And to take that a step further seems kind of unrealistic to me. I don't know. I, I see that as a finality, like not, but not in a, the last time we get together kind of way, but as in a, we are together and we are never going to be separated again. Mm, yeah. Which is, which is what they want you to think. But you know, in terms of how they've been made as characters to develop, does mm-hmm. that make sense? We don't know. Right. Well, Alex does. He's read the he's read the manga. No, I've only I've only looked at Wikipedia and related sites. Oh. I know what happens in the manga. Yeah, I, I don't think <laughs> I don't think this manga is is licensed, is it? Don't know. Oh my God, guys, is this our new Chihaya Furu? <laughs> <laughs> is this the thing where we have to like crusade for it to be licensed? I'm I'm looking right now. The the okay the anime has been licensed by Sentai, but and this is just the Wikipedia article I'm looking at. But uh, the manga has not 
been licensed, it doesn't look like. I'm going to check A&N just to be Ooh. sure. Uh, no. No. Why okay, has Someone nobody... needs to get on this. What in that? Okay, it's been licensed in... Oh, of course. It's been licensed in France. It's been licensed in Spain. It's been licensed in Italy. It's mm. been licensed in China, Taiwan specifically. What <laughs> the hell, people... Like the, the oh my hmm. okay it's yeah. about jazz I, it's I, about American fucking music I, I have I have a new manga crusade cool awesome. yeah, I'm really I'm really curious how it plays out because whether whether there is like a reunion like all three of them reunite separately then together or if like so I did read that there's like nine volumes of the manga but then there's like a a, a bonus mm-hmm. kind of volume, yeah. and I wonder if that sounds like something that would be taken care of in the bonus volume. Yeah, no, right? you're right. That that you would you would kind of see how these characters have evolved, and you know, hopefully, it would explain why the, the, things are able to work out in a way that that Ritsuko and and Kaoru are able to have their happily ever after yeah. kind of deal. The the way this ends reminds me. A little bit of the way bunny drop ends not like i mean i know i know like you're just saying that it's gonna like i can't see, wait for this in addition to like well, <laughs> in addition to like you know uh leaving it before like not you know leaving some ambiguity there um i just the way the way bunny drop ends the anime um, it's just you're 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 left with this. You don't need to know what happened. You don't you don't want to know what happens <laughs> after. Um, but there's this. I, I forgot. I think it's I think it's a shot of of I don't even remember the uh, the girl's name, but her smiling or something. And and um, the narration in the background, the main character. I'm terrible with names. Um, says something like. Uh, I forgot what it is. It's like all he needs, or like, or just like the family idea, or whatever. But just this, this sense of satisfaction, the sense of peace, and it's not like knowing, like who gets together with who, or what, or how events play out, but just sort of the emotional resolution, which is what we get here with Kids on the Slope. I know mm-hmm. it's a bit of a stretch, but like, mm-hmm. as soon as like I, I think of the two endings, I just, I like the way both of them are sort of unresolved in a way because we we want to know how how the rest of these scenarios are going to play out you know whether it's this you know young guy raising this girl and how he's going to sort out the rest of his life or you know you know kind of what happens with these three friends who reunite but um i i don't know i don't know where i was going with that um no i think that's very no, that, because that, you're, yeah. you're you're talking about you know uh unresolved familial issues and that's very apropos because you you don't know who's going to be accepting of what uh, especially given the the life circumstance you know Kaoru has been basically abandoned by his father for his developmental years you have uh, Sentaro uh, paralleled and I think that's very adept because when they're raising other people's children or trying to connect with other people it speaks to uh, a form of relationship that they have never known and they must grow themselves 
and that's difficult, but they do so through their friendship. And even yeah. just going back on um, sort of the question and even wondering whether or not, you know, a, is a gay relationship or could have been seen that way, I, I just, I really like the way um, they show the vulnerability um, between all three of them, but especially between the two male characters when, Sar when Centaro is able to cry with um, mm. Kaoru and and even like when Centaro grabs Kaoru's hand and they're running, holding hands for a moment, you know, um, but it's not, it's not like a sexual thing, you know, it, and it, and, and I think even just the reunion of the three of them together and without Kaoru and, and Rechan being a couple, it's, there's, there's none of, there's none of that sort of romantic baggage. It's, it's pure friendship um, and the love and the strength and like just the power in that love you know, with sort of the sexual aspect removed and, and how powerful that can be in and of itself. Oh, God, yeah, that, that rooftop clenching of Sintaro uh, to uh, the, the other guy's chest, like, just like, you know, cry now because neither of us could see each other crying. That's fucking fantastic. And anyone whose chin does not start quivering at the sight of the other person's chin quivering <laughs> is inhuman. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, that's kind of... I think that's what kind of caught me off guard that Centauro leaves after that. Because from a, from a central kind of character struggle kind of standpoint, you would think that that moment would be the breakthrough moment for him. Because he goes from being... Billy badass, you know, ruler of the the school roof, to I'm going to cry into my best friend's stomach because he knows that I can't be seen crying, but I I need this kind of I need to release this pain, and for him to be able to do that, you think, okay, boom, he's he's he has just resolved his central kind of thing, but yeah. you know, then then he disappears, and it's kind of like wow, like. That's that's really interesting, but yeah. you know maybe he, maybe that's kind of the first step for him on that path. But yeah, oh, oh. And, so and with with him running away, like, because he tries to run away before, when the dad's coming right. back, and that just right. seems so sort of because he always faces problems, like head on. He's not afraid of confrontation, um, and especially like being sort of that protector of those kids. Um, I yeah I had a hard time even sort of accepting any time that he would attempt to turn tail. Yeah, I, I think that fits into the fa in, into the sort of fight or flight sort of thing because mm. he's he's facing a lot of issues that still haven't been resolved because he's still facing resolution with his father um, as he knows him now and as he has known him. And this this sort of catharsis versus uh, handoff of emotion uh, or emotional maturity to Kaoru as they're on the rooftop is a huge thing. And I think that might define his flight because he's passing off his uh, sort of troubles onto Kaoru because, mm -hmm. okay, I'm admitting my... I'm admitting my vulnerabilities, I'm admitting my weaknesses, and I'm, I'm letting them on to you, and now I can sort of flee as I need to, to recoup. 
Mm. I like that reading. It's not necessarily true, but it is a good reading of that scene. Mm. Yeah. Because he does disappear right immediately thereafter, after the the attempted scene where Kaoru, you know, stops him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that shows without that foil, he is he is gone. Mm-hmm. He has already made up his mind to be gone. And the only thing that stops him is his friend. Mm-hmm. Okay, back to questions. <laughs> We get such great questions on this show. We do. We do. Um, this one is from some dude named Corey. Who's he? I'm not sure. Um, he's at Impassionate K on Twitter if you want to want to follow him. Um, but uh, he asks, y'all into jazz? <laughs> well, thanks for putting that y'all in there, buddy. Y'all... <laughs> You know what? Just for that, I'm gonna I'm gonna unleash my full power for a moment. I'm Do gonna, it. We'll we'll skip all the editing of me like screaming into the mic to charge to power up. But um, <clears throat> y'all in jazz before this, and and how much did you listen to after? And uh, also, who, if so, uh, where's this sitting both Watanabe and Kano's pantheon? I I just want to comment that the festival performance spread by word of mouth is how music is spread across friends and i love that scene <clears throat> thank you Corey. uh we uh ink what what, what 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 do you think man i'm gonna pass this to alex first okay because <laughs> i'm too busy laughing yeah i destroyed ink i'm sorry <laughs> damn y'all i'm so sorry about that man i apologize it's all right so i wasn't super into jazz before this um and I, I wouldn't say I'm uh, super into jazz or was even really inspired to seek out jazz music after. Um, the draw for me really was just um, these characters and their relationships. But, you know, I, I mean, I loved the music um, and, and how it sort of served the story and um, just the, you know, increasing sort of the impact of the emotional moments. Um, that isn't to say like I, I like I don't like jazz or anything. I just don't have a particular love for it either. Uh, but uh, to address his other portion of the question, um, this is I, I I hold this like is just my personal favorite of uh, Watanabe's works. Cowboy Bebop is great. Um, I'm just episodic stuff with without as much of a focus on. I, I mean, I, I don't want to, yeah. I um, Go for it. Come on, full blast, man. Yeah. No, <laughs> no restrictions. <laughs> no, I mean, I'll just, I'll just, yeah. Um, anyway, it just, this, this just really speaks to me. I, I, yeah, I, um, I don't know. Um, but Alex, even Gillian and Cowboy Bebop are the two greatest anime ever. <laughs> no, I, I wish I liked Cowboy Bebop as much as some other people, um, but. Um, I don't. <laughs> uh, Music-wise, uh, Wolf's Rain is my favorite of Kano's composition work. Um, I just love that music so much. Wolf's Rain's good stuff. So is Cowboy Bebop. I just yes. There Cowboy are people Bebop. who are very. There are people who are very into Cowboy Bebop. Yes. <laughs> well, I do hold. Kano and Watanabe's Pantheon's ultimate culmination of music versus animation excellence as Cowboy Bebop. I will cite that so 
because one influenced the other to the point that it continuously evolved the show itself. The, the music introduced by Kano made the animation different, the animation made the music different, and vice versa, in this process that snowballed into this uh, show that many people have loved. And I cannot separate, uh, when watching Cowboy Bebop, the music from mm. the animation. And I think that is really the point of involving music in anime, and the fact like I, I would say the same thing is done in Flowers of Evil because the 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 ambient score really makes the animation as threatening as it is. Mm. And I think the the score in Cowboy Bebop as uh, as laid over the animation really drives the action and the humor and the uh, the drama of that series. So I really loved that collaboration but in kids on the slope it's more light-hearted it's influential and referential it's really good but i i don't see it as like the the ultimate exploration of watanabe and kano's uh talents mm-hmm. i mean it is fantastic and they both do their all on this there is no uh disregarding that but uh, I think in the Pantheon, this is probably second to Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, I, and I think I would I, I would definitely agree with you um, as far as yeah like the two of them working collectively, um, and the the two yeah right the composition and the and the storytelling and everything kind of working in harmony. Cowboy Bebop is sort of the the perfect marriage of those two. As to the first part of that question. I actually do listen to jazz, but it's kind of the same way I listen to classical. I just sort of put on a radio station or a internet station and chill. Uh, I'm not that familiar with so many names or albums. I do own a huge Thelonious Monk box set, uh, one Charlie Hunter CD, some uh, uh, John Coltrane and uh, Duke Ellington, uh, Howlin' Wolf, I own a, a couple of albums, and... Uh, I think what this series influenced me most is that after I saw that, I, I immediately went to every single version of John Coltrane's uh, My Favorite Things I could find, and <laughs> I watched them all. So there's like 20 recordings, and uh, there's some 17-minute version of My Favorite Things that I kept on repeat for like three days straight. I really enjoy jazz. Um, our public radio station here plays jazz in the evenings, and it is wonderful. Um, they also play a lot of classical music. I love classical music. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I won't claim to be a great scholar of jazz, though I, I absolutely love to listen to it uh, whenever I get the chance. Um, the in, in terms of the, the aspect of it that's, you know, where's this sit in both Watanabe and, and Kano's works? Uh, Cowboy Bebop's a pretty singular piece. I I think that in terms of if, – if I'm to separate the two, I, I think in terms of Watanabe, I really, really I, – I do think I like this the best. But I like this kind of stuff. I mean this is like playing to my tastes. Um, in terms of Kano <laughs> – 
my favorite uh, my favorite uh, score she's ever done is Macross Frontier. She did like all of the freaking songs from Macross Frontier, mm-hmm. and um, kind of Maine has become kind of the new her new muse in a lot of ways, and I think that's awesome because um, they they complement each other very well. Both Maine is like being able to perform a, a, a range of things, and then Kano just being able to to bring out the best in her singing so um across frontier incredible 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 uh wish it was licensed we'll save that for another podcast though um <laughs> yeah this, this this music is the most sentimental music i've i've ever heard uh from a from like a kano work though uh the opening and the ending for this are just mm. absolutely gorgeous yeah uh, and um, I could listen to those over and over all day. Can I can I drop a bomb here? Do it. According to the extras, the uh, interview with Kano specifically on uh, the uh, Sentai disc, Kano hates jazz. Hmm. Hmm. And yet the series is as effective as it is. She is that effective as a musical director. I didn't uh, think she hated any particular form of music. I, I I've I've seen interviews with her where she kind of talks about. She doesn't really have a. She doesn't think about genres of music when she writes. I wonder if, because her her approach kind of sounds so jazz. That's really weird. Really. Yeah. yeah. But hey, you know, she's a genius. She can do what she wants. <laughs> and uh, Corey has a follow up question. Also, which of you plays the drums and which plays the piano? Is that to, is that to say who who of us is the Centauro and who is the Kaoru? Because <laughs> I think we're. I think we're. I think we're all Karu. <laughs> yeah. <I> think... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, mentally. I mean, physically. I'm. I'm kind of the the brother June. I I, I learned uh, French horn and I played that for years, and uh, can sort of futz around on trumpet and baritone, but uh, yeah, yeah. Physically, uh, I may be more of a June, but mentally, definitely Karu. Yeah, I. I play guitar very badly and I sing very badly. So that's all I do. Mm. And don't do a whole lot of that. I'm more of a written word kind of guy. I've always been envious of the musicians for their for their elemental powers, but mm. sadly, sadly not not but not for me. I learned uh, piano at a young age and took a ton of different instruments in like band class. Um, in school, and mostly um, sax and then trumpet, but never, never really to any um, degree. Um, and then taught myself to play uh, guitar, and that's sort of my my go-to instrument now, just to kind of have fun. But I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a musician or anything. Just kind of fun, just for fun. So. Mm. Yeah, same here. When I very rarely break mine out anymore, it's just to mess around. Yeah. Any final uh, thoughts on Kids on the Slope? If for some reason you've reached the end of this podcast and you haven't seen it yet, and uh, we haven't convinced you yet, please go watch this show. Please. So good. It's one of my favorites. It's up there. It's probably in my top ten. Jared? This is absolutely in my personal top ten. I I strongly feel that this is going to be uh, in the top ten of my list for anime of the decade. 
you know, I don't know if I have an anime of the decade besides, you know, of course, my my ever beloved show Arakago. But mm. I think I think <laughs> that this show punches in that weight class like it. It's not quite there, like in terms of the raw drama. But, oh, God, it's real close. It's it's um, overall, I think it has less problems. <laughs> but um, it's this is so good. If you want to see two of the very best creative talents uh, working in anime today, well, we're three really with Mappa and and Watanabe and Kano. Um, you'd be crazy not to watch this just for that alone. Uh, if you're a fan of anime, so yeah, go watch this if you haven't already. For whatever reason, I think this is a show that became easily forgotten. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because it's so easy to ingest and so easily relatable that you pass it off as something you've already experienced or witnessed. But you need to witness this. You need to tell your friends to witness this because this is one of the most heartfelt, touching anime that really comes to mind when you mention any animation involving music. It, it was not only conceived the point where it needed detail and passion behind its direction, but it's one that involves passionate direction behind its characters and implementation. Well said. One of the most well-executed shows you'll ever find. And very rewatchable. I'd say it needs to be rewatched. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 don't think a, I don't think a rewatch of this really... You'll only get more out of rewatching this. It won't feel like a retread. Mm. So, Alex, where can we find you on the interwebs? Uh, you can find me uh, over on Twitter, Alex C. Osborne. Um, and you can try to track me down on other social media platforms uh, using that as well. Um, Twitter's uh, where I am most of the time, so that's the best place to find me. And then you can find my work over on IGN.com and uh, any gamers on occasion. Jared? Save versus Jared on Twitter, and uh, eventually one day other things. <laughs> I'm working very hard to make my life less busy so I can return to doing things that bring me joy, not only things that I get very passionate about in, in a non-creative sense, but really uh, have not protected my time very well for my for my creative work and desperately miss it, so... Uh, yeah, uh, uh, working on it, and I'll have more to say when I've got something to, to show. So, Jared underscore Karu at twitter.com. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can be found at Animated Inc. Uh, on Twitter. Uh, I've got a couple of articles coming up in the next issue of uh, Anime USA, which is uh, an offshoot of. Otaku USA. I've got uh, features on Chihaya Furu 2 and Kakaguri, as well as a review of uh, Garo Vanishing Line. And also, there was just a piece that was uh, put up uh, this week on Fandom Post uh, that relates to older releases of anime that haven't gotten Blu ray releases, which I uh, go down the reasons why Shitoshi Kon uh, deserves Blu ray releases. So please check that out. God, yes, uh, he does. Fuck yeah. Uh, 
otherwise anagamers.com and uh, this wonderful podcast I do with Jared weekly or not weekly monthly. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> God damn if we do this weekly. Oh. Uh, oh. Uh, yeah, that's about it. So thank you for joining and thank you for your questions. I always appreciate it. Uh, as a reminder, please leave five star reviews and comments because we love those and we will respond. Uh, on endthegamers.com and your platform of choice for the podcast and uh, yeah thank you very much for listening we will be back next month with something completely different thank you everyone for joining thank you Alex thank you Jared and we will see you next time episode of eating with jared what are you eating jared sesame chicken Aww. and i have an egg roll here and i have fried rice that i haven't yet tapped into yet but but it's coming i love the spoon shoved under the lid it's very nice professional <laughs>